try to build a homeless shelter in a fancy neighborhood like the Upper East Side or Upper West Side, it's harder than building a nuclear reactor in those neighborhoods. Like they just won't let it happen. Everybody claims they want to solve this problem, but then people don't want vulnerable people in their backyard. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how's life out in Jersey? Um, All is good. My dad and I are about to head up to Lilydale, New York, this community of like psychics and mediums to um, for an article I'm writing later today, right after we record. And so um, I'm excited to do that. That's where my biological family is from. So we're, we're about to do a, an interesting little trip. How's, how's wait, New no, York? Wait, no, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting that go. <laughs> so wait a minute. Uh, your dad doesn't strike me as this sort of psychic type. No, he is. He is. So he was adopted. No one ever told him. We did a DNA test and we were like, or I found out like there are no schlots in these matches. And sure enough, I applied to the state of New York. There were adoption papers and he is the biological son of two psychic mediums. So we're going up to the community that they used to um, spend like summers in, I guess, um, where you can only live there if you're a psychic. So oh my God. more to come. I'll, I'll fill everyone in on Tuesday when I'm back, let you know how that went. Yeah, I, I'm dying to know how this turns out. Uh, and yeah, what's your dad's attitude about this right now? Is he, is he excited? Um, is he a little nervous? Oh, no, he's pumped. We, we went a couple years ago and now we're like being hosted specifically because I'm writing an article about it for the post. But he's he's all into it. It's it's kind of fun. Um, he tells everyone about it and and. It's an interesting heritage to have, certainly. Um, it doesn't match him at all. He's not very intuitive or it's like, a nature, I, I don't think he- It's a nature nurture situation. Well, okay, I can't <laughs> yeah, wait to- no, all good. I was just gonna say he's definitely was not nurtured to be a psychic, but yeah. we'll see. Maybe, maybe something will click while we're there. All right. Well, I'm fascinated. Uh, please get some video. Uh, I just want to see it. Totally. I want to see what this is all about. Uh, well, I want to thank our listeners for their patience. I'm back on two feet and ready to roll. I'm back here in the studio. Uh, we have a different schedule next week because we have the election on Tuesday and we figured it would be weird to just release an episode that came out as the polls were closing. So just stay tuned. It's going to be a little funky. In part, we're going to just kind of roll with the punches as results come in throughout the week. We'll definitely have a normal Thursday episode, but earlier in the week uh, will be different. Uh, we also have a very packed schedule today. We are, we're going to talk about the homeless crisis affecting our schools and our children in New York City and around the country. We're going to talk to John Ralston from the Nevada Independent. He's the foremost expert on Nevada politics for a while now. He breaks down that critical Senate race as well as the gubernatorial race and just some of the dynamics in a state that's changing pretty rapidly over the past few years. But first, Ricky, Let's talk about the midterm elections writ large. Just a reminder off the front end, we're going to be talking about a, a lot of election stuff as we head towards the midterm elections. Though Ricky and I, if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, know that we have you know strong beliefs uh, about candidates, issues, et cetera, that we express outside of this podcast. You know, We're a C3, so we won't be advocating for any of those candidates, any ballot initiatives, et cetera. And so all of our commentary here is meant to set the scene and analyze where things stand right now and where things could go after the election, but we won't be taking any sides in any of these races. So hate to disappoint you on the front end. Yeah, so it's coming up November 8th. There are 30, uh, 34 Senate seats up right now, and it seems to be a toss-up uh, between whether the Democrats or the Republicans will take the Senate. Um, whoever manages to get two of the three very close states here seems to be um, in the green, and Republicans have some considerable hopes for Nevada and Georgia and Democrats for Pennsylvania, but I think those are really where um, everyone's eyes are right now, and um, it's it's certainly going to be a toss up here. What do you what are you seeing as the odds between red and blue? Yeah, they've been shifting pretty dramatically. Uh, it's almost like watching that game between the Patriots and the Falcons in the Super Bowl a few years ago, which is right over my head. May go over here. Yeah, yeah. The, the odds have changed pretty dramatically in the Senate. So, as you mentioned, it's currently a toss up. Five thirty eight, which is a website that I trust as much as anybody on this, puts it at fifty three percent chance of Republicans uh, taking mm -hmm. the Senate in their model. This model had Democrats at a seventy one percent chance of uh, holding holding the Senate as of September 16th. So we're talking about a rapidly shifting dynamic. And yep. 
the the current odds about 53% are roughly where the race was back in July. And so depending on you just move it a couple months here, a couple months there, you see dramatically different results. If you push it a couple months before that, you had Republicans uh, overwhelmingly favored to win. And so mm -hmm. that's the Senate. Uh, the U.S. House, which we're, we're not going to talk about as much in this segment, is pretty overwhelmingly favored for the Republicans. So right now the Democrats hold the House, but Republicans have an 85% chance, according to that model, of taking the House. Now, that that is a lot, but it's important to remember that that is about the same odds that the New York Times gave Hillary Clinton of winning the presidency on the day of the election. But as I tell a lot of my Democratic friends, although that is true, that people have defied greater odds, it's rare that you find in our modern day polling getting things wrong in a way that eventually helps Democrats on election day. It, it usually seems that Democrats underperform on election day on polls, uh, with certain exceptions. So, you know, this is a toss up uh, on, in the Senate. And I think, as you mentioned, this map is interesting in part because Republicans are playing a lot of defense. So mm -hmm. there, you said they're 34 seats up. 14 seats uh, are held by Democrats right now, 21 held by Republicans. So they're having to defend a lot more seats. But traditionally, midterm elections uh, favor the challenger party, meaning the party yeah. that's not holding the presidency. And so the, the you know, in a certain way, you have an unpopular president, Biden, under 40 percent approval. You have the traditional midterm dynamics, with the exception of Bush in 2002 and Clinton in 98, which are two exceptional uh, races, one involved 9-11 politics and the other involving impeachment politics. It's rare to see anything other than a shellacking, as we put it, in these midterm elections. So you have that going in one yeah. direction, but you also have the GOP playing a lot of defense. And so that's why it's it's more toss up than the House is right now. Yeah. And to the point of the um, president being or his party being disadvantaged historically, we're seeing that in the issues and the way that um, different advertising campaigns, especially from Republicans, are more nationally oriented and talking about Biden and the economy and things more holistically because they're the party out of power right now, whereas Democratic campaigns are more going for like their local opponents in terms of who they're targeting and, and advertising and in their messaging. Um, it's interesting looking at the advertising dollars and how they're being spent. Three and four dollars spent are just going to six states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, Nevada, and Ohio. Um, and the issues that, that each side are honing in on are um, particularly interesting. Um, Democrats are, as I said, definitely more locally oriented, but definitely talking by far the most about abortion. Um, $103 million of uh, advertising has gone specifically just to that issue. And then they also tend to be um, characters assaults a little bit more towards their Republican candidates, perhaps because there are some colorful Republican challengers that they're facing at the moment. Yeah, um, just to add one data point to what you said about abortion. So this gets a sense of what each party wants to talk about and doesn't want to talk about. You talked about $103 million Democrats yeah. spent on abortion as of October 25th, $4 million from Republicans on abortion. Yeah. So that's clearly not what they want to talk about. And you see the reverse when it comes to Biden. He, he's showing mm -hmm. up a lot in the Republican ads, only three Three million spent uh, mentioning Biden on ads as of late October for yep. Democrats. And the big issues that Republicans are honing into are um, the economy. Taxes are number one, which I would have thought inflation would have been. Um, so I was surprised to see that. But the economy, taxation, inflation, um, rising crime and Biden. And then some smaller topics that they tend to be hitting in their advertising a lot are immigration, Nancy Pelosi, which I wonder if that will shift now post that attack on her husband. Um, also energy and criminal justice reform. And their biggest spend is $89 million on the issue of taxes specifically. So it's it's definitely interesting to see how this is all shaking out. Um, also, there's a lot more outside groups that are um, contributing to Republican spending than Democrats at the moment. So, yeah, yep. but those are those are the main issues. And I think it's interesting, especially on the abortion front, to see how much attention was poured into that immediately following Dobbs and how the attention span of voters seems to be potentially limited because things have shifted now more into the Republicans quarter with inflation and economic concerns. Yeah, my sense is it's going to help Democrats like 
you know, if you look at some of the polling from the late spring, for example, Democrats were in a worse position, but it's not going to help them as much as it seemed in the middle of the summer. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, depending on what your politics are, this could either be chilling or thrilling. Uh, Nathaniel Rakich from 538 said, quote, Republicans are just a normal polling error away from a landslide or wiping out. That's how close this is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's really fascinating here, you talk about money, Open Secrets, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that tracks election spending, projects that more than $9 billion will be spent on this federal election, which includes the House and the Senate. That's a record for a midterm. It's double what was spent in 2014 and a 32% increase in inflation adjusted from 2018. And if you look at the map, it's really fascinating. Democrats are bullish uh, you know, Democrats are hoping that they're going to pick up seats uh, in Pennsylvania. That race has gotten a lot tighter, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. GOP, the GOP thinks they're going to pick up seats in Nevada and Georgia. Those are the ones that are most likely to flip in one direction or the other. Uh, Democrats, though, are also bullish in Ohio, which is tighter than a lot of people expected. Iowa. I talked to Admiral Mike Franken last week, who's the Democratic candidate there. Uh, the Polling there has that narrower than you think. I mean, it would be a true upset upset if that one flipped. North Carolina, Wisconsin, those are the seats that Democrats have an outside chance of flipping. Uh, and then the GOP is bullish on Arizona, where Democrats have a huge spending advantage, but it's still pretty tight. We obviously talked mm-hmm. to reporters from Arizona earlier this week about that. And New Hampshire, where the Democratic candidate in New Hampshire, in direct spending dollars, meaning money raised by the campaign, uh, the Democratic candidate there is like, dramatically outraised the Republican candidate, but the outside groups have come in and made up the difference there. It seems like outside Republican groups sense an opportunity in New Hampshire, which is a traditionally, you'd say, like left-leaning state with a a sort of libertarian bend, a state that Mm -hmm. there's some weird New England politics. If you look at even Vermont, like they do dabble uh, in uh, bipartisan politics. And so that will be a fascinating one to keep an eye on. Yeah, definitely. And actually one um, race that when I was on Andrew Yang's podcast, which I think is coming out this week, um, he flagged for me as a fellow third party um, kind of Utah. curious person is Utah, where Evan yeah. McMullen is um, running as an independent. There's no Democratic candidate and he's pulling some some serious votes. I saw a very interesting attack um, on him, long form attack by Tucker Carlson on his show where he was calling him McMuffin. And I think it's mm. demonstrating the fact that, you know, if you do come into a race as What does an that mean though, McMuffin? Like what is the I muffin part of that? Yeah. Just like okay. he, his name sounds like a, a McDonald's breakfast sandwich apparently it's not it wasn't a very substantive attack is yeah. my point in bringing it up yeah. <laughs> um because they, there's consistently the sense that third party candidates are if they're challenging someone of of your own party which he's challenging a republican incumbent then you need to attack them because they're pulling votes away wrongfully from them um which i think is kind of an unfortunate pattern but then we also have the situation in Georgia where you have to hit a 50% threshold in order to win the election and there's a libertarian candidate that's raking in about 4% right now so there's a good chance that we'll have a runoff election down that way because of a third party disruptor so it's interesting yeah. to see a few little blips here and there um which you know I like to see things being shaken up and so I think just watching and seeing what happens in Utah, where um, Yang is pro McMullen, um, will be interesting in terms of um, what what the potential third party future looks like. Right, and we of course have no positions on elections within this podcast, but I did know that given who I was talking to this morning, that I was talking to you, I did my third party homework, Ricky, and mm-hmm. the Utah Senate race is fascinating because the last poll that came out in that race has lead just up by one. Now, yeah. There were some polls before that that had it way bigger margin for Lee. But that's just a fascinating number. See what Mm -hmm. happens there. Uh, Pennsylvania, also the Senate uh, race there. The Libertarian candidate, uh, Eric Gerhardt, is polling at 3% in the most recent poll that I saw, uh, which could have a tremendous effect. And that would be probably more favorable to Fetterman than Oz, given who Libertarian candidates tend to pull from, which is interesting because Georgia could it could really favor neither in the long term, but it definitely will like weigh in favor of a runoff. Uh, yeah, the, the third and then party we'll be candidate. talking about that 
election for another month, month. after every, yeah. everything else. Um, At least it's just a closes. month this time. And, and I'll yeah. direct people back. We'll put it in our show notes. We had a, a good conversation uh, with a journalist from the Atlanta Journal Constitution about that. Uh, but we also have the Arizona governor's race, which we've also talked about, which has a third party candidate who is has an uphill climb to get a uh, enough votes to win, but certainly could siphon off an, enough votes from the Democrat to play a decisive role in that race. And then you have the Arizona race where there was a libertarian candidate who was playing a major part, but who just dropped out and endorsed Masters. So there are a lot of, and that's just a a few races out there that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. There are, so there's a lot of third party politics out there. I I know a lot of people who uh, support third party candidates want to see more, um, but they are playing a role, whether they can win or whether they're just, you know, shifting the scales in a race. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, even even though I don't know that there are any major contenders aside from McMullen in the third party realm, um, just seeing them as like a force to be reckoned with and, and seeing the fact that voters are so at least a, a considerable enough subset to be disruptive are being pulled to alternative options, I think puts a little bit of a, a fire under the butts of um, bipartisan politics at the moment, which is I, th- I would say a healthy thing for democracy to see some more options and to see people say neither of these two options are really serving me. So I think that's one thing that I don't know that it'll blow up any um, any major races, but it'll be interesting to watch and see, especially in the kind of lesser of two evils era of politics here if there's a a shift that way in this election cycle. Well, let's close by looking at two ads and we're going to play one ad from each party because we, you know, we don't endorse the messages of these ads, but we're playing these to analyze them. Uh, Let's start with an ad that uh, has been airing in the state of Georgia. We know it was the original sin that caused inflation, the DC liberal spending spree. And yet, didn't that end up contributing to inflation? Do you have any regrets? No, absolutely not. Senator Raphael Warnock voted along with Speaker Pelosi and President Biden to allow wasteful spending we didn't need and frivolous luxury projects not in Georgia. Do you have any regrets? No, absolutely not. Tell Senator Warnock it's time to finally stop the reckless spending to stop inflation. And so, Ricky, this this has two of the trends that you talked about. One is uh, Republicans trying to nationalize the race, which is in the, yeah. you know, it's, it's what you want in a midterm election, especially when you have an unpopular president. He's, you know, this, this ad ties Warnock to Pelosi and Biden to an extent. Uh, And obviously hits that critical issue of inflation, which is obviously on voters' minds. And let's throw to an attack ad on Oz. This is who Dr. Oz wants in charge of women's health care decisions. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, (laughs) local uh, political leaders, local uh, political leaders. Oz would let politicians like Doug Mastriano ban abortion without exceptions, even in cases of rape, incest, or life of the mother. Oz is too extreme for Pennsylvania. I'm John Fetterman, and I approve this message. You know, one thing coming out of these ads that's fascinating to me is I think, obviously, when you look at the demographics, there's a dwindling and older percentage of people who are actually watching television ads. And so it's interesting to see how much money is still being poured into that sort of medium. I guess YouTube is a place that you could repurpose the same ads. But I I wonder in future election cycles if that is going to be a smaller percentage of um, spending on TV ads specifically. I have never seen more ads in my life, whether it's on Instagram, YouTube, Mm. Are definitely on TV. Like, if you just try to watch a football game, it's like, I'm seeing, I don't even, I, I've worked in politics most of my adult life. I don't even know half the candidates I'm getting ads for because, in part, you can't really target these ads well. So they're very inefficient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm watching the same football game. I'm getting ads for Maloney in, uh, in Westchester, New York, to a candidate, Malinowski in New Jersey. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's horribly inefficient, not a great way to spend money. And it, it reminds me of the conversation we had with the Arizona reporters earlier this week when you talk about Carrie Lake's campaign uh, for governor of Arizona, mm-hmm. which is, you know, people have strong opinions about her. I certainly do. But one thing that she's betting on is that she is going to go directly to the voters that she wants to speak to and doesn't seem to be spending a whole lot of money on sort of 
what we called broadcasting. Remember, we were talking about broadcasting versus narrowcasting. She's a narrowcasting candidate in the way that she's spending her money. You know, another thing to mention here, just to kind of harp on some other segments that we've had, is remember we talked about debates and whether they matter or not. This ad, this ad uh, on the Fetterman campaign, is a great example of the conventional wisdom of debates versus what campaigns do with debates, right? Uh, Chuck Schumer was caught on a hot mic uh, uh, very recently where uh, he was talking about how the Democrats are underperforming in Georgia relative where they thought they'd be, you know, given some of the stumbles of the Walker campaign. Mm -hmm. But doing better in Pennsylvania post the Fetterman debate than a lot of conventional wisdom suggested. And this ad tells you a little bit of why, which is it's not... They could just take a single clip, which this clip of of Oz talking about like abortion decision is between, you know, whatever and whatever and your local politician. If they weaponize that, that can overwhelm other perceptions of the debate. Now, do I think it will? I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. it's certainly it, like the narrative is still up for grabs after these debates, which I find really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I also don't think that same debate helped Fetterman very much at all um, in in terms of its entirety, but it's definitely true that you you make yourself vulnerable to the sound bites and the things that get played over and over and over and then in slow motion like that one. Um, but yeah, one thing that I'm excited to see not only is the results of this election, but also the end of those text messages that I've been getting. I don't know oh if God. you're on the receiving oh, yeah. end of them, but my dad put my phone number down at some point, and so now <laughs> yeah, they think too. I'm like Mine say an Eileen. elderly Republican man. <laughs> yes. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I get I get my mom's too. She put my number down. God bless her. Let's turn to a different story. I know we're in the middle of elections, but it's really important to take a step back and say, you know, what are some stories out there? This is what we're all about as a podcast. I know people who have been joining us recently. We've been talking about the elections a decent amount. Our bread and butter is the most vulnerable people out there in society. And particularly, we like to talk about kids in schools. Mm-hmm. And... Ricky, um, you've been doing a deep dive into you know something happening here in New York that echoes a lot of struggles that cities and counties and, and towns are struggling with all across the country. Um, you want to talk about homeless kids here in New York City? Yeah, and first just to paint um, a kind of broader picture of the national situation here. Um, latest tallies show that there are 1.5 million public school students who are homeless in some variety or being temporarily housed. Um, It's the highest level in over a decade. And over the course of the pandemic, it's only worsened. Around 300,000 K-12 students fell fell off the enrollment rolls um, during the pandemic. Schools have been a place of refuge for a lot of kids who didn't have a comfortable or safe home life. Um, And then add in the challenges of Zoom school when you don't have web services or internet access. And um, it was really just an insurmountable challenge for a lot of these kids. And that's why a lot of schools are still unsure where where some of them kind of fell off. But um, here locally, we have 104,000 homeless students um, in the public school system in New York City, which is just a staggering number. It's larger than the entire school system, or almost as large as the entire Philadelphia school system. Um, 30,000 of them are in shelters. 70,000 are doubled up in housing with other families or even tripled up. Um, And 5,500 are estimated, it's probably an undercount, but are estimated to be entirely unsheltered, living in cars or abandoned buildings. And of course, we just recently had the migrants that were bused into New York City, which has only exacerbated this issue. And there, a lot of them are living in temporary housing. Just this year, we saw 7,200 new um, homeless students enroll uh, in, in New York City schools. Many of them are ex- assumed to be these asylum seekers who need extra support. They're legally required to be taught English. And so these challenges that we're facing right now are um, really just clarified locally at a level that they haven't been before. And it's a clearly a tragic situation. Yeah, really heartbreaking stuff. I know when I was uh, working in schools, we used to have um, students who either came in homeless or became homeless throughout their time in schools. And those are by far the hardest kids to reach because you have no idea what's happening when they're outside of your school building. uh, But you can tell, like if there was a bad day where a student was kicked out of their housing or they had some kind of dispute with their landlord or their, you know, often with their family. I had students who mm-hmm. would um, start staying with other students that they became friends with. And I would find out weeks in 
that yeah. the student was staying somewhere a parent might not even know about where the kid was. Sometimes there are addiction issues. Sometimes the parents are just trying to, you know, make things work. And, and you know, there are many kids involved. Sometimes they're splitting up their families, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's really backbreaking stuff for schools to deal with and for cities to deal with. And New York City just has a massive amount of kids right now, both from the intergenerational poverty and from new arrivals within the city. And the needs of those two populations aren't necessarily the same, right? Like, yeah. And Ariane from our team talked to Jennifer Pringle, uh, who's from Advocates for Children of New York, uh, who was quoted in the story of New York Times. For, uh, Troy Clausen uh, did this story a couple of days ago in the New York Times. Really great reporting on, on how deep this crisis is. And what I think was clear in the interview with Jennifer Pringle was they're struggling the city is struggling as a whole to meet the needs of these i would you could say two populations there's there's many different subpopulations mm-hmm. within this and like you know dealing with english language le- learners versus uh, intergenerational poverty for example is just wildly different and in in neither case are we getting this right the educational outcomes for students experiencing homelessness are they're awful um and they are worse than students who are identified as low income. Uh, Students experiencing homelessness, particularly those in shelter, um, have a dropout rate uh, that is more than three times the rate of their permanently housed peers. Uh, Only 60% of students in shelter graduated in four years. That's more than 20 percentage points uh, lower than the rate for their permanently housed peers. So New York City has been um, attempting to respond to this kind of additional pressure that we have in terms of the homeless uh, situation here by sending extra funding um, for students or for schools that are taking more than six new homeless students this year. So they're allocating $12 million that is going to be spread over more than 300 schools. By almost all estimation, that is not enough. That's not a and lot if you do the math. Yeah, that's like a yeah, tiny amount. Yeah, yeah. By one estimate, it would need to be more like $34 million. Um, and so there is an additional initiative to send $2,000 extra for each student um, with or each school for each student that is uh, now being temporarily housed. Um, there's plans also to send 100 new staffers into shelters to be essentially kind of liaisons for students and make sure that they are um, being cared for and that they're ending up in schools and actually enrolled. But the city is yet to hire any of them. And so it's definitely a an ongoing challenge. And I, as much as I don't love the theatrics of using migrants like, like Abbott did, I think it does demonstrate that as much as we can say we are we are a, a sanctuary city and, and we're pro-migrant and we're pro-asylum seekers, which can all be true, we also need to acknowledge that um, just this drop in the bucket of a couple thousand extra students is such an enormous and difficult challenge, especially with the barriers of needing to teach them English and all the additional challenges that come along with it. And so I think the city really is grappling with the reality of what it means to to be completely radically open to to migrants. And it doesn't mean that that's a bad thing, but it's certainly something that I think is is much more challenging when you actually have the situation at hand in front of you than when you're just imagining this kind of ideal. Like it's 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 really tragic and to see these kids who are struggling with language barriers or struggling with housing situations, it's just, it's really tragic. Yeah, and this gets to the, the, the real life consequences of some of the politics that are playing out here. You know, when we start busing people for political purposes, you know, to one place or to a handful of places as opposed to really working together across our 50 states to distribute vulnerable people in a way that we could serve them and actually working together to say, hey, who are the most vulnerable people in our society? Children, children who don't have a home, transient children, right? This is our, this is the symptom this is like the this is as as visceral a symptom of our broken politics as anything that exists and obviously it's not simple right it's not just about the people sending it has to do with our inability in a place like new york for example to look in the mirror and say why does it cost so much to build housing why does it cost so much to mm-hmm. educate kids why can't you know like it's try try to build a homeless shelter in a fancy neighborhood like the Upper East Side or Upper West Side is like, you know, it's it's harder than building a nuclear reactor in those neighborhoods. Like they just won't let it happen. 
And, you know, you could look at mm. one example after another uh, of whether it was trying to convert hotels like Lucerne Hotel or whether to try to build um, shelters that have been languishing for years, these projects, is, you know, this just shows that everybody claims they want to solve this problem, but then people don't want uh, vulnerable people in their backyard if they've paid a lot of money for that brownstone and want to send their kid to that fancy school. They don't want to open up seats in that school. They don't want to open up their neighborhood to housing. They don't want to have people on their doorstep who are grappling with issues that a lot of the homeless population grapples with, whether it's intergenerational or it's new migrants. To that point as well, I think it's also incumbent on some of our leaders as well who who say that they're they're pro-immigrant and they they want to build new housing and yet at the same time we have very contradictory laws on the books that we've discussed at length in terms of zoning and making it prohibitive for the free market to solve what it can solve by building more housing or building upwards in areas where there's a housing strain and and a crisis of housing and so at the, there's there's so many different levels of like yes people might be resistant to just artificially plopping people in the middle of a zip code versus not just letting the free market, not that the free market is a perfect solution, that there wouldn't need to be patches and, and additional intervention beyond it, but not just letting a landlord who sees a, a desire for more housing build upwards or expand how many people can live on one plot. And so I think that there are um, a ton of competing different legislative issues here that are exacerbating this issue and that are um, kind of you know, you, you, we're saying one thing, we're saying we're such a welcoming city and yet at the same time we're unwelcoming to a lot of the development that is required to actually live up to that promise. Right, and, and to put a number to what you're talking about, the Real Estate Board of New York, which is the real estate entity in New York that, that represents real estate interests, so they have, you know, a, they're biased, of course. They think we need 560,000 new units of housing by 2030 and we're not building, we're not on a trajectory to build anywhere near that. And Adams mm -hmm. in his housing plan uh, refused to actually put a number and a goal to the number of construction and preservation of affordable housing units. Because I think in part, he doesn't want to be held accountable to a number, which should be you know shocking to a, a lot of us. There's also just dramatic, incredibly deep issues with staffing at all levels of um, the homeless support system. And here's Jennifer Pringle, who we heard from earlier, talking about staffing issues at the department itself. Also, it's critical that the Department of Ed gets the staffing in place so that they can effectively hire and train these new staff and um, implement some of the other initiatives that they want to. Right now, there's not a director of the Students and Temporary Housing Program. You know, if, if the city wants to really support families and make sure that they get, uh, like, proactively reach out to parents, find out what the issue is, connect them with services. You need leadership in the program. You, you, you need a director who can oversee the training, support, hiring um, that's going on. And we can't hire enough shelter-based community coordinators in part because the pay is so low. The pay is $28,000 for this position. And... No, it's like the same issue, right? You can't live in New York City on $28,000 in part because we're not building enough housing. So the very people we're supposed yeah. to be supporting the homeless also are uh, having to deal with our inability to build housing. So it's almost a circular issue here. Absolutely. And I think that there are some more low-hanging solutions here, even though we do get into much broader philosophical ones, one of which is that in terms of um, chronic absenteeism among homeless students, often that's because kids end up in shelters that are very far away from the school district that they're registered to be attending in. And so making sure that that can be a flexible sort of registration for them so that they're not, their their families that already can't afford housing aren't then um, required to make sure that their kids can commute an extra 20 minutes to school. I mean, that's one thing that would help tighten this issue and at the very least eliminate one of the major hurdles that homeless families encounter. And then we've seen different um, proposals roll out across the country. One that's interesting from New Mexico was a cash handout system that they did specifically for high school students 
um, they were giving them $500 a month, um, but that required that they show up 90% of the time to school and they do 90% of their schoolwork. And they rolled it out with just over 50 students. It was a small scale attempt um, and all the all but one ended up graduating. And so it was highly successful. I think it um, demonstrates that especially with older students who presumably if you're in high school and you're in this situation, your your family's kind of allowing you to go out on your own or is has no option but to require you to be highly independent. And so giving these kids a little bit of a cushion just to say, like, you don't have to worry about as many of the adult issues that you're prematurely being foisted into based on your circumstances seems to have given them the freedom and the incentive to actually show up to school. I think it becomes tremendously more difficult when you have younger students who's who are still dependent on family members and parents and you don't know how that money will be spent. I think um, it's definitely a model for older students, but it does demonstrate that they do have the incentive structure and the responsibility to make sure that they get there, they show up on time, and school can be a little bit of a job for them, which for me, I, I would say that this seems to be a potentially promising solution for the older students involved here. And, um, you know, I, I certainly don't have any problem with potentially attempting to roll out something similar at a larger scale or locally here. Yeah, I, I like this program in part because we'll look at in our show notes to uh, the homeless segment we did a, a while back where I think it might have been San Francisco, I can't forget what city it was, uh, and this is like a rough approximation, the amount of money they were spending in that city was somewhere the equivalent of what it would t take to put somebody up in a fancy hotel, right? Like just the sheer amount of money mm -hmm. that we're spending. And I like programs like this that just say, hey, let's, let's cut out as much red tape as we possibly can, give the money to the vulnerable population, mm -hmm. have a bar and trust that they'll meet it, instead of you know being paternalistic and already you know negotiating with ourselves i think a lot of my progressive friends will say oh it's like inhumane to ask kids to show up to school in exchange for money etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm like this money wasn't there before so right like the the, the reason mm -hmm. this money exists is to incentivize the kids to go to school so we're not comparing $500 to go to school against $500 that's just a handout because the handout is not going to happen absent these kinds of incentives. You're not going to be able to raise this kind of money. You're not going to be able to allocate this kind of money. So I would love to yeah. see this scaled. And my, my theory of government is the quicker and the more efficiently you could get the money into the hands of the people you're actually intending to serve instead of like the bureaucracy and people who are, you know, well-intentioned as they may be, siphoning dollars off uh, before they get to the people we need. I, I'm for that. Yeah, I mean, I actually, this is sort of the case that universal basic income proponents make is that rather than have this convoluted welfare system through which like all these institutions and people's salaries get, like the money gets filtered through all these different um, kind of drains before they actually end up at the person's doorstep and they are told what they can spend it on is a less effective way than just saying, you know better than anyone else. Here's the money. Even though I'm not in favor of UBI on a like a totally national scale, I think that this is actually a micro kind of test case for that, and it demonstrates that even 14 year old high school students who are in tough situations are smart enough and wise enough to prioritize the right things and benefit tremendously just from having this slight extra $500 a month cushion that actually enables them to dedicate their time to something as important as getting their high school degree and getting fundamental skills that they need to succeed beyond that. I think, um, yeah, this is, even though I am generally anti-interventionist, I think these are pretty much the most at-risk, at-need kids who as much intervention and help that we can give them at an early chapter in their life um, will set them up for success and will su set society up to receive them in a, in a healthier way once they graduate. Yeah, one obvious critique of these types of interventions is that it incentivizes people to have more kids and that the parents might claw back some of that money, et cetera. This was, I think, a, uh, a critique that I get when I talk about, you remember my radical idea, which was to give kids money um, in a, an account you know, for going, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, if they want to like forego the K-12 system, which I won't <laughs> reopen yeah. that debate. Uh, but this, this I think falls, uh, I think prey to some of the same critiques, but part of what I'm thinking is let's at least try it and see what happens, you know, do it. Also, I don't think that there's the same incentive if you have to wait until your child is in high school to start getting $500 a month and they need to also be homeless. I don't think that like versus 
I would I would say that there is a potential, as I mentioned before, with younger kids and families taking money and misusing it potentially. Um, but you know, this is this is assuming a level of adulthood and responsibility of these kids. It's giving being given directly to them. Of course, there is a chance that a guardian abuses that. But I would say that um, by having that buffer of saying these are high school students, I don't I don't think that's incentivizing anyone to have have more kids and put them in the temporary housing system, certainly. So I, I would say that this is definitely a buffer for that. Yeah, you could pass laws that could at least mitigate that issue, right? Like the right of the child yeah. to that money. Uh, you could also have certain amounts of that money have some kind of time, uh, you know, some kind of delay, right? So that some of the money is earned mm -hmm. right away and some of it's earned when they turn 18, et cetera. Uh, you know, but that's one option. A second option, and I actually sent some messages out to people I know in New York City about this today, is I think we need to be building mega campuses in some of these cities like New York City uh, of boarding schools. I think like boarding school within the K-12 system for, for kids who are not rich should be an option and I think it should be preference for the most vulnerable kids because often it takes a little bit of the pressure off families. I actually used to get this question a lot when we were running schools is because we, we, we would call ourselves prep schools. Like my first school is called Nashville Prep. And the parents would ask, hey, do you have a boarding option? Which we didn't have the resources to do that. And a handful of charter mm -hmm. schools I know do that. It's very rare, rare within the charter and the K-12 space. There are a few schools like the Seed School in D.C. that do this. I would love to see more models like this because I think parents of all income levels deserve the option to send your kid to a boarding school. And I think we should be particularly piloting these things in places like New York City that are really struggling. Um, like the data we were seeing is like some of these kids are, they're being um, moved from one borough to the next, uh, you know, in a matter mm -hmm. of weeks. And it, you, know, you know how hard it is to get from Staten Island to the Bronx, for example, uh, to go to school. Like this stuff is really difficult. And a lot of times parents will take this option if they were given it. And I think given the amount of money in the system, we could afford to do this well. Yeah, I would just my only reservation on that is I would say that building that out on a mass scale would be tremendously difficult as somebody who went to a boarding school and saw that even with some of the most resourced kids in the entire country, it's a tremendously big burden for schools to need to be their their housing option, but also kind of parent them through really difficult situations. And I found that there were a lot of kids who struggled tremendously as a result of having teachers effectively need to subsume the role of parenting. So I would say that I would hope that would be a last resort for families. I understand that there are situations where families would feel that that is the way to go, but I would say that it's definitely not a fix-all situation. I've seen, you know, those are really tough years of like being a teenager and being away from the house and a lot of people struggled tremendously like that with that even with the most resources available to them so i would i would hope that that would be a last resort sort of situation yeah and i and it, it obviously you're not going to hit the 104,000 with that solution alone but i think it could play a part and part of my theory of government mm -hmm. is i would want my government doing fewer things but taking on the hardest challenges and doing them extremely well and i think this is one yeah. of those things i would put near at the top of the list uh but ricky Let's transition to our final segment of the day. Our producer of the show, Michael Hendricks, uh, who's usually behind the scenes, had an opportunity to interview John Ralston uh, from the Nevada Independent. This was an absolutely fascinating interview. I've worked in Nevada politics before back in the Obama campaign. I, and I and listening to this interview, I learned like 30 things that I didn't know before. So let's kick it to this interview. A warm welcome to John Ralston, who is CEO and founder of the Nevada Independent and about as, as keen an observer of politics there as we have. So welcome, John. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess let's just start with the bird's eye view here, which is, you know, the, the latest polling I've seen from your team has the top two Democratic incumbents here. Um, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and, and Governor Steve Sisolak narrowly ahead but we're within the margin of error in both of these races. So are we firmly in toss-up territory at this point, or is this leaning one way or another? Uh, I think they are toss-ups. There are other polls that have come out that show just the opposite. You know, uh, uh, Lombardo, Joe Lombardo, the sheriff of Clark County running for governor, slightly ahead, and Adam Laxalt, uh, the former attorney general, running uh, against Catherine Cortez Masto, slightly ahead. So 
I don't pay much attention uh, to, to polls anymore, Michael. I, I, I prefer to concentrate on the, on the raw data, and we have a lot of it already after uh, you know, a week and a half of early voting and mail balloting. We know there's been 400,000 votes cast uh, already here in Nevada, and we can tell uh, to some extent what that means because so many people vote before Election Day, and it looks very close. Yeah, I, I just pausing on the Senate race first. Um, the Cortez Masto finds herself in a strange spot here. Now, from the outside looking in, um, this is the first Latina senator in U.S. history running in a majority minority state where nearly 30 percent of the population is Latino. And yet it could very well be that same constituency that loses her this race. So why is it that she's struggling with that block or at least appears to be? Wouldn't that really be something? You just framed it really well. First Latina ever elected were to lose, and if the Hispanic vote uh, were to partially cost her the race. Republicans think it will. Republicans have invested like uh, nothing I've ever seen before in all the 35 years plus that I've covered politics. Club for Growth, an outside Republican group, has spent more than $2 million on Spanish-language media here to help Laxalt by going after her and promoting uh, Laxalt. So what causes something like this? Now, we're still not sure that that, that that's going to happen, right? Her internal right. polling shows that she's okay with Hispanics. By okay, I mean she's got 60%. She needs to win Hispanics two to one probably to feel comfortable. And most Democratic statewide candidates who've been successful in recent cycles have done that. But other polls have shown uh, less of a margin uh, for her. So it's got to be somewhat concerning. She has not worn her heritage on her sleeve in the way that other Hispanic candidates uh, and elected officials have during her tenure. Uh, she's playing it up a little bit more now uh, that, 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 that she's up for re-election and she wants to remind Hispanics that she is Hispanic. I don't think it's an accident, by the way, that Laxalt and Republicans call her Masto all the time as opposed to her actual name, which is Cortez uh, Masto. Uh, and Masto is, is her husband's name. Uh, it's her married name. So um, listen, uh, uh, Hispanics are not monolithic, and but Hispanics are also very much like everybody else here in Nevada. They've been hurt by inflation, hurt by high gas prices, their bottom lines are, 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 are have been have had an impact on them, and they probably are disappointed in Joe Biden in the same way that a lot of other Democrats, Republicans, Independents are. So she's got to she's got to do something about that. Um, traditionally in Nevada, the Hispanic cohort, uh, again, I don't want to generalize, but to some extent, decide late in an election cycle uh, which way they're going to vote. I think she's counting on that. Right, and I mean. Like any other demographic, it tends to be it's younger Latinos that are going to lean Democratic here. And she needs to turn those voters out to hold on to this seat. But you know, that seems like a tall order for a candidate specifically like Cortez Masto. And I like this turn of phrase I read from you today, which is described her as more of a workhorse than a show horse. And like, is that something that she can overcome or is that is that going to be the thing that really holds her back here? It's a really good question. And, and, and the problem doesn't just lie with Hispanics. It's a midterm election. Turnout's going to be lower than in a presidential election. It's more difficult to get young people to come out to vote in any election, but especially uh, in a midterm. Now, there are groups like Next Gen America that specialize in doing this that are very active uh, in Nevada. But uh, you're right. She's got to make an appeal to them that, 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 um, uh, this is an important election. She has tried to use the abortion issue uh, to do this across demographic groups, but also they believe that Hispanics are especially susceptible to, to the message that Adam Laxalt is putting your rights at risk. You need to vote. So they've done that. Um, whether this all works or not, uh, uh, we're, we're not going to know for a little while. Moving to the, the gubernatorial race, um, the sense I get from, from Joe Lombardo is that he is stuck doing the same tricky dance around Donald Trump and Trumpism more broadly that a lot of Republicans around the country are doing. Um, in, in a sense, he reminds me of, say, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia when he was running or Brian Kemp in Georgia running now. He doesn't want the full bear hug from the former president. He's willing to criticize him to an extent, but he's not interested in alienating him either. Um, he doesn't think he can afford that. 
And that is pointedly like that is not the approach of Laxalt, who we've been talking about, or um, or Jim Marchand, the uh, the Secretary of State candidate, who I want to ask you about next. But uh, it does make me wonder if there is a red wave materializing here. Um, is that going to be the sort of thing that lifts up two different molds of Republicans, or am I am I making too much of a distinction between the Lombardo? and the Laxalt and, and Marshawn. Listen, um, if there's a deep enough red wave, it's going to carry uh, some flawed candidates to victory, potentially. Uh, Joe Lombardo, in most polls that I've seen, is running a point or two, maybe three points ahead of Laxalt uh, because he has not been as doctrinaire as, as Laxalt has been in embracing Trump. He does not have as long a record as Laxalt. He's still not nearly as well-known as Laxalt. But what Lombardo has done with Trump and going out and seeking his endorsement during the primary when they thought they were, they might have some problems from a full fledged MAGA candidate. Then Trump came here after the primary and they thought that was the end of it, per- perhaps. Then during a debate uh, about a month ago uh, that I moderated, I asked Joe Lombardo about, about Donald Trump and asked whether he was a great president. He said he's, I wouldn't use that adjective. He's a sound president. And you can hear all uh, at Mar-a-Lago, Trump throwing his, uh, uh, you know, something <laughs> TV, right? Um, by that evening, his campaign had corrected the candidate. Yeah. He's a great candidate. But even worse, they had Trump come back because I think they thought they had problems with the base in, in rural Nevada. And Lombardo got up on stage and called him the greatest president of all time. From sound to great to greatest in the space of a few days. Let's turn to that um, Secretary of State race that, that I mentioned. Uh, the fight over the, the 2020 presidential election in Nevada were about as highly contested there as in any state in the country. And that has produced this candidate, um, Jim Marchant, who's running on a platform and, and leading a, a nationwide coalition at that, as I understand it, all defined by election denial, first and foremost. Um, so while he is being outspent and out campaigned like that race is right within the margin of error too so you do have to figure like this message that the 2020 election was rigged is resonating with voters to some extent well you know two-thirds of republicans or thereabouts in most polls believe that the election was stolen which is shocking right but marchant was right there he was at the false elector ceremony here in Nevada. He said his own election for Congress, which he lost handily, was stolen. And he essentially has said, you need to elect me so we can make sure we elect Donald Trump in 2024. This is supposed to be an impartial arbiter who oversees uh, elections. Um, the reason that he is doing well enough in the polls to be within the margin of error is because no one knows what the Secretary of State does. I, 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 participated, I, I watched some focus groups, a couple of them, nine in one and eight in another, about a month and a half ago. No one knew what the Secretary of State was in the state, and no one knew who was running, literally to a person. And so the tribalism that occurs uh, when you vote for Adam Laxall, Joe Lombardo, oh, I don't know these are offices, but I'll vote for the Republican, um, uh, that, that that's going on. And that's why he has uh, in the low 30s. That's about what the Republican registration is in the state. The Democrats have the rest. And then there's all these un- undecideds. And so uh, Cisco Aguilar, who was running against him, is a complete unknown, very well-liked lawyer in political circles and business circles. But he has not run the greatest campaign, to be honest with you. I think he waited way too long to try to expose Marchant for who he is. And, and we're going to find out if the, he did just enough or not enough uh, on November 8th. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I, I think he, he was a former Reed staffer, so I assume he gets he gets some he gets some cachet from that. But then, you know, his the case that I've, I've read him making is that um, he can't get Democrats to pick up the phone when he goes and, and calls to to tell them that, hey, this race is really important. I, I could lose this the secretary of state office in, in a key purple state that will be contested in, in future presidential elections, 2024, you know, being, being the first of, of many potentially where, where this could be a real issue. 
Yeah, I mean, that that quote, when I saw it, that he can't get Democrats to return his calls, that may well be true, but why say that? That just <laughs> doesn't make you seem like the strongest candidate, right? He's clearly frustrated, but, you know, you didn't get in this. It's not politics ain't beanbag, right? You got to get in there and, and mix it up with him. Uh, and I think he's just waited way too long to do that. As I said, 400,000 people have voted uh, uh, already. They're not listening uh, to Cisco anymore. As you mentioned, by the way, he is the head of this Secretaries of State America First coalition, which essentially is an election denier group that wants to make sure Donald Trump wins the 2024 election. So Aguilar is is not the sole example of this, where you know, he is wildly out um, fundraising. He has a significantly bigger war chest than Marshawn is working with, which to me is surprising given that I, I think Marshawn, if, if either of the two, has far more national notoriety. Um, but up and down the ballot, you are seeing these giant gaps in fundraising where Democrats are pulling in all these oodles of money, but you just are not seeing that show up in the polling. Why is that? I, I know it's not unique to Nevada and it's not unique to this cycle, but what is this? Well, to some extent, what individual candidates raise is not as important as it used to be. Catherine Cortez Masto, for instance, I know we're talking about Marchand, but I want to make the point with her, too. Mm-hmm. She's raised so much more than Adam Laxalt. Adam Laxalt and Steve Sislak has raised so much more than Joe Lombardo, uh, just as Cisco has raised so much more than Jim Marchand. But outside groups can make up the gap, uh, uh, you know, spending by super PACs and C4s and the others. Uh, they spend money on TV to bridge the gap for these candidates. Certainly true in the Senate race, certainly true in the gubernatorial race where a billionaire essentially has funded uh, the effort against Steve Sislak on, on behalf of Joe Lombardo. And for Jim Marchant, there's some of these outside groups, Citizens for Sanity, that are helping fund uh, uh, commercials for Marchant. The problem is, is that people just don't pay that much attention to the down-ballot races. And the governor's race and the U.S. Senate race have sucked so much of the oxygen out of every other contest that you are bombarded by four or five or six adds for those races to maybe one for a down ballot race and, and you may not even pay attention uh, to it or you've changed the channel uh, by now, right? So uh, I think it's a combination of those two things. Gotcha. I, I do want to zoom back out a little and kind of just look at the, the statewide picture. Um, you know, it, as you all know, it's not like Nevada has ever been some kind of true blue state. You're far from it. But there was a time all too recently that even I remember where Democrats looked at, at the Reed machine, um, named obviously for, for Harry Reed, the, the longtime uh, senator from Nevada and Senate Majority Leader. And they, they looked at this ground operation he had with a certain kind of awe and an admiration like this. This is the, the ground game that, that other states should be aspiring to. And when I look around now, I see some people say that the machine is alive and well and, you know, don't count Nevada Democrats out quite yet, even with all the headwinds they're running against this year. But I see others saying that the operation just isn't what it used to be without Harry and Democrats are going to have more trouble winning in Nevada than they used to, not only this cycle, but, but going forward. And I guess I'm curious what your sense is, which of those two is closer to the truth? Well, I mean, I've seen a lot of spe- what I call speculative journalism that the read machine is faltering. It's not going to be able to do what it uh, used to do. And, and we just started early voting nine or 10 days ago. And I watched those numbers very closely and I have for a long time. And these are the numbers usually generated by the read machine where they bank a lot of these early votes. What Harry Reid was able to do with that machine was use, I've used this phrase before and my friends in the Democratic Party don't like it. They've used the Democratic Party as a legalized money laundering operation where they can raise all this money because there's different rules for parties than candidates and and they can flush that money through, use it for voter registration operations and then to turn out those people that they register. 
uh, Harry Reid wasn't the one going out knocking on doors and, the, and, and, and doing this or getting the voter files. These are very skillful operatives and they're still there. Uh, and they're still doing this. But you mentioned, and the word you used is correct, they are up against incredible headwinds this time, unlike any that, that we've seen here since 2014, when they essentially fell asleep at the switch, by the way, didn't put a gubernatorial candidate up and got shellacked up and down the ballot. They didn't do that uh, this time, but they're still up against a different kind of headwind. You got a president who's under 40% approval. You got, we have, you know, second or third, and maybe it's even number one now, highest gas prices in the country. Inflation's a problem here. We were crushed by COVID because essentially Nevada is a one trick pony when it comes to the economy and you shut down the Las Vegas Strip for a few months, as the governor did, it's going to have a, a devastating effect. So they're going up against all that. And I'm not saying this, I, I, this is not a brief for them, although I've watched them very closely. Um, they can't do what they used to do in a year like this. So all they can hope to do is hold their own because the Republicans have their own natural advantages. Republicans always turn out in greater percentage numbers relative to their registration than the Democrats, but they don't have the kind of registration lead now that they used to the Democrats. It's only about 3%. It's usually 5 or 6%. They haven't been able to drive up the registration, mostly because of the headwinds uh, that, that, that we've been talking about. So the Reed machine is alive and well, even without Harry Reed. The question is whether even the Reed machine can buck these headwinds. And again, we don't, we don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah. Well, this, this does lead me to my next question, just because you could see why something like the Reed machine would be especially important and potent in a state like Nevada. Because I, I do think a lot of people who aren't as familiar with Nevada would be as shocked as I was when I first saw this number quoted in the Times. And I'm just going to read this. Almost half the voters on Nevada's rolls have registered since Ms. Cortez Masto was last on the ballot in 2016. I mean, to me, that is just mind blowing on its face. But I'm specifically curious, you know, what effect does that have on how an incumbent candidate is even supposed to approach their campaign when half the people are different since you took office? Yeah, I'm not sure that that fact that that number is correct, although hundreds of thousands of voters have mm -hmm. registered uh, out of the one point eight million who were registered now since she was first elected. But you've hit on something that's really important, Michael, and this is why I think she is especially vulnerable. Um. Uh, you mentioned the workhorse, not show horse comment that I made before. She's not out there. She has not been out there during her term in the way that most U.S. senators are trying to get publicity for things, getting her name out there, defining herself outside of being a Democrat who always supports the Democrats or always supports a Democratic president. So if you don't have an obvious persona outside of that, it's easy to graft onto all the ills of uh, uh, the Biden administration onto her, which is what Laxalt is done. Laxalt does not say her name without saying Joe Biden's name in very close proximity ever. The Biden Masto administration. We've heard this before, but that I think it, it has really hurt her in a way it might not have hurt someone who was better known. And, and I think there's some Democrats who think she should have done more to, to prevent this from happening. Um, she may survive it anyhow. She, she has worked as hard as any candidate I've ever seen in her campaign has been, even Republicans acknowledge this, the best one in the state in many ways. But um, she's just unwilling to be as, I'll use the word, as political as a lot of uh, elected officials are to try to seek publicity. She was the same way as attorney general and it frustrated Democrats then as well. Yeah, I, I do. I, it is hard not to see there, there's a remarkably easy playbook for Republicans this year. It is inflation, it's crime, and it's tying whoever you're running against to a historically unpopular president. It is it is it really any more complicated than that for you know Laxalt and Lombardo, especially? Like they're running against Democratic incumbents who in some sense have to defend what is they have to they have to align themselves with the White House to some extent. They cannot fully run from that. So is that just a, a, a trap that they're not going to be able to get out of here? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a very difficult trap to get out of. You know, I, I in that same debate, I asked Steve Sislak about Joe Biden and whether he was happy to have Joe Biden come and campaign for him. And and of course, Joe Biden has not campaigned for him. As we are sitting recording this podcast, uh, a guy you may have heard of by the name of Barack Obama is here doing a rally. <laughs> uh, they love having Barack Obama here because he can energize the base. They don't want Biden anywhere near uh, this state, which is really something to say about a sitting president, no matter how unpopular he is of your own party. There's one other issue that's been lurking in the background in both of those races and does in every statewide important Nevada race and sometimes comes to the forefront. And it might be, might be counterintuitive, but that is uh, immigration. We are obviously not a border state, but we have a lot of undocumented immigrants here, a large Hispanic population. And so Laxalt especially, Lombardo to a lesser extent has used open borders as a, as, as, as a buzz phrase. And you see this around the country, but it does have some resonance here and it does energize the Republican base. Yeah, absolutely. More states than most. You can see why that would, would strike a chord. Um, John, I think we can leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you again for, for all the insights you've shared here. I, I, you're the best in the biz. What can I say? I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. He hit all the notes, I think, that we talked about at the national level in our first segment. You know, the fact that uh, mm -hmm. Lombardo at the gu gubernatorial level is running away from Trump. The lack of awareness of the Secretary of State race I find really fascinating, even, you know, especially given the stakes of that race, the money imbalance that Democrats otherwise would have had, but was wiped away by PACs, uh, the fact that the state has some of the highest gas prices. I mean, there's just so much in there that I think makes Nevada a microcosm and perhaps will be the decider uh, in the, at least in the, the battle for the Senate and potentially a, a huge consequential gubernatorial race. And so we are mere days away, Ricky. So we will know the answer to some of these questions very soon. Yeah. And maybe I'll make contact with the dead uh, between now and then. Yes. Well, good luck in. out there. <laughs> uh, and well, you're an old soul. So I figure you and the dead might have more in common than you might have with your other Gen Zers. But uh, <laughs> probably <laughs> make some new friends. <laughs> uh, well, with that, I want to thank our listeners. Uh, once again, we'll be on an irregular schedule next week. So bear with us. Uh, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Uh, you know, we are a nonprofit institution. One of the reasons why you don't hear a lot of ads or any ads on this is because we like to bring you a nuanced, bias free podcast. And uh, if you like what you hear, the one thing we ask in return is that you tell your friends about us, you leave good reviews for us, uh, and you keep coming back. So hit that subscribe button on YouTube, uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.